Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. On this week's episode, we're discussing patient adherence to treatment as a foundational aspect of pain management. The evidence base and research in this area tells us that high levels of adherence to things like physical activity or perhaps an exercise program are highly correlated with positive health outcomes. But what about when a patient does not adhere to the agreed upon treatment plan? Do we know how to increase patient adherence? And do we know how to promote the maintenance of pain self-management behaviors? Joining me this week to discuss adherence to and the maintenance of self-management behaviors in people with musculoskeletal pain is Dr. Anne Soderlund. Anne is a professor of physiotherapy in Sweden with a special interest in behavioral medicine. Her research area is on prevention, treatment, and evaluation of health problems from a behavioral medicine perspective embedded within a physiotherapy framework. This includes a strong focus on an individual's behavior, behavior change, and the ability for functioning in everyday life at different ages. On today's episode, we discuss the important topic of helping patients adhere to exercise programs and other self-management techniques for the treatment of chronic pain. Anne is a leader in this area and has some really great research with regard to physiotherapy and behavior change. She's definitely someone's work I recommend that you follow. Okay, without further ado, let's begin and let's meet Dr. Anne Soderlund. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here this week. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk about your paper. Whenever I have someone who's done a, a really good quality piece of research, I like to mention the paper. We link to it in the show notes, and I, of course, recommend everyone read it. So I just want to start out with that. So the name of the paper that you uh, wrote is Adherence to and the Maintenance of Self-Management Behavior in Older People with Musculoskeletal Pain, a scoping review and theoretical models. It's in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, 2021. When I came across the paper, I was excited because, first of all, I just love theoretical models. I think it helps people think about what they're doing and kind of put things in better frameworks for, for all of us and kind of reflect on our own practice and say, okay, there are things I'm doing within this model and there are things that I could do better or start to insert within this model. Just first tell us, because the whole paper is in the context of pain self-management, and pain self-management in and of itself is a big topic. Yeah. Based on your paper and your experience, how do you define pain self-management and what does that include? There are a lot of definitions for this one, pain, uh, pain self-management or self-management uh, in general, but we needed to decide for one definition and uh, what was more of uh, like uh, when I was clinically active, what I thought the self-management would include and did include. So the borrow definition I used, we used in our paper, suited well to us. It is about the ability to manage the symptoms, manage different parts of treatments, physical and psychological consequences, and lifestyle changes that the chronic condition demands to people. It is also kind of monitoring the condition to see by yourself what I am doing with myself, what are the good things and what are the bad things I am doing with myself. 
and also the effects of uh, both cognitive and behavioral and emotional responses, what are part of the self-management. So it is quite a large and a whole, according to my opinion. So his uh, definition suits us well in this paper. It's a very encompassing definition. So there's a lot under the hood there with regard to pain self-management. Yeah. And it, yeah. it really, as a therapist, as I was reading that and kind of reflecting on it, it also just gave me a little bit of pause and say, you know, someone who is living with pain and someone who's managing pain really has a lot that they have to consider in their life with regard to managing the condition and potentially overcoming the condition. So it's interesting when I see it in, you know, in this light that, wow, there's a lot here that we have to start to look at and piece apart as clinicians and researchers to help people. Why was, well, I guess the study had two aims. So I'd like you just to briefly tell us what those two aims were and then tell us why this paper was important for you to, to um, start to delve into with regard to research. We have been talking about adherence and maintenance in pain context, but also in other contexts, um, in physiotherapy in particular and uh, generally too. I think since 1970s or something, it's so huge many years and there is nearly nothing happened during these years. We have been just talking about it. So the advancing knowledge in this area hasn't been great at all. We wanted to show the gaps in research and uh, maybe uh, stimulate uh, researchers uh, to go further and uh, study further these concepts. But also clinicians, because that is uh, more specifically the second aim, which was about to reframe some models uh, about this. And those uh, we plan to have uh, components that um, people could recognize and uh, use in clinical work because they weren't not, these components are not so complicated. They are not complicated at all, but we are not as a clinicians and or as a uh, researcher, we are not, we are not thinking about this. Mm-hmm. We just, uh, okay, it will be okay. We have a package, we have a treatment package and we will do this with the patient. And then it is kind of, uh, yes, of course, the patient will follow the regime, which is not happening. So there's two aims in this paper. So the first aim was to study the adherence and maintenance of these pain self-management programs. And the second was to basically create these theoretical models for adherence and how that relates to behavior and behavior change, which is so important. You know, as physiotherapists, behavior change, I think has been, even though we've been focused on behavior change since the beginning, the language around behavior change hasn't really entered our stratosphere probably into the last maybe 10 years or so. Mm. Why is behavior change so important for a physical therapist to consider and why is it important within the context of this pain self-management approach? Um, I believe it is about everything we do. Because, yes, there are some treatment methods that we manually do with the patient to the patient that the patients are not supposed to do back home. But in every patient's um, program, treatment program, there are things that the patients should continue back home. And many times as older people, more more in that case, they need to do it rest of their lives. With the knee arthritis, for example, you can't just uh, stop exercising or stop physically or being physically active. 
you need to do it the rest of your life. And what what should we do that to support these one these mm-hmm. changes? And it is about behavior change. Whatever, even those cases that uh, we give the patient and something um, transcript nerve stimulation, little um, apparatus, and uh, they are supposed to use it back home. That is also behavior change. They are not do- if they are not doing, they are not getting effect. If they are doing, they are getting effect. But it is about to meet patients in the behavior change circle. So I think it is very good that we have started to use this vocabulary in PT area and also acknowledge that this is what we do and this is what we should do. And it is no complicated thing and it is not only psychologists who should do that. Well said. And that was very apparent as I read your paper. And it's another one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you. There's an aspect, and I think we're a little bit responsible for it as a profession, as, as physical therapists. And then there's just a maybe a stigma attached to it, so to speak. But when people look at us, they look at us like, oh, well, we just instruct on exercise. Mm-hmm. That's all we do as physiotherapists. Well, that's the primary thing we do is instruct on exercise. Yeah. And I think no matter who we're talking about, whether it's a personal trainer or a yoga instructor or a Pilates instructor or a licensed physical therapist, there's a lot that is underlying exercise instruction, specifically therapeutic exercise instruction, when you're working with populations of people with chronic disease and chronic pain. And I believe your work lends a lot of support to that in that, okay, within that pain self-management realm, we're not just prescribing exercise. We're actually working on cognitive behavioral change with regard to the promotion of physical activity, which is a really different conversation. Yes, it is. But we shouldn't uh, um, forget that the instruction is one type of uh, behavior change strategy. We need the instruction. We need to show what to do or how to do it. That is part of it. But we should not stop there. We, there is so much more to give or to help people to support the change. Yeah. And it is fun. It's also fun when you see that, okay, I got the keys to the person in front of me he or she understands what we are doing together. It's really, I think it's very exciting to, to use these components for behavior change and strategies. I think it's important just for us to talk about the words adherence and maintenance for a minute, because that's kind of the, the mm. really crux of this research. Describe to us what adherence means and what maintenance means with regard mm. to pain self-management. Several years ago, there was a word, uh, we were using only the word compliance. And compliance is something the therapist says that the patient must do this. There is no agreement. And the adherence is a more patient-centered way to get an agreement of what to do and how to do it and how to reach the goals the patient has. So there is situations, there are situations where we should need to use, we should use the word compliance. And it is when you are using opioids, then you need to adhere or comply with the prescription. You should not take less or more. That is compliance. But when we are, we have, we have, I think we have no treatment parts or treatments that we good demand and compliance from the patient, the adherence, which is person-centered way to get an agreement, what is good, how to start, what to do, and where is the call. 
And maintenance is, um, these two are together, quite together. You don't get maintenance without adherence. So maintenance is a difficult concept, especially in physical activity area, which we are using a lot, or, or exercise area, where we know that the patient should keep on doing, keep on doing, keep on, keep on doing. That is maintenance. But in studies, so they are measuring the effect of uh, in disability or range of motion in longer term in some months, and then they call it maintenance. That is not really maintenance for me. It is sustained effects, but it doesn't say what the patient is doing. So maintenance of the self-management behavior is is different. But it is very difficult to define when do we reach a maintenance after two years, 10 years, 100 years. Yeah. I don't know. Good. And I want to I want to just bring this point back that we, we've been talking about exercise and physical activity a lot. But again, this paper is is broader. So when we're talking about pain self-management, it's not just the physical. It's also the psychological, the cognitive, behavioral lifestyle, as well as the environmental and social aspects of that entire pain self-management program. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, as I mentioned before, it's a lot. So you broke these down into maintenance of behavior and adherence to behavior. You have these models. Can you tell us the three parts of these models? Because both have three parts that are similar. Yeah. We were talking, my co-author and I, we we were talking a lot how should we do these models and uh, start from the beginning, think uh, all by ourselves, the whole thing. And it wasn't because, as I said, we have been doing research uh, since the 1970s in these areas. So there should be something to start with. And then uh, I have always been, and not always, but um, several years now, been interested in uh, Mickey's, uh, Susan Mickey's work. uh, She's a psychologist in London. College University. And um, this is her model. This is her kind of, um, it is a larger than than only what is happening between two persons. How should I support my patient, an individual here and now? It is larger than that, this uh, COM, as they call it, COM model. So we decided that uh, because uh, the ingredients in uh, capability, motivation and opportunity, they were, they were, I could see them in these areas, how to describe and how to model adherence and maintenance. So, so then we decided to do it from this point of view. And also this shows that um, you were talking about environment uh, some seconds ago, and there is an environmental aspect in this. So it shows to our clinicians and research that don't forget that one. There is a motivation, there are capability, which are the personal things, what the, what you skills and, and so on, what you have. And it uh, affects motivation, but also that the environment affects motivation. So we shouldn't forget the environment, the more environmental um, parts of this. So I love that. That C-O-M you mentioned is capability, yeah. opportunity, and motivation. And that both yeah. that capability, opportunity, and motivation both apply to the maintenance of behavior as well as to the adherence of, your, of behavior with regard to that pain self-management. Yes, but a little bit different contents. Yeah, and I want to talk about those a little bit as well because there's some interesting points in each of those. So if we're looking at adherence to behavior... Under that capability section, one of the first things you have there is education. 
which is important because right now in the world of physical therapy, pain education is kind of a hot topic. It's been a hot topic yeah. for years now. I think it'll continue to build in some way, but it's not pain nor science education necessarily. What I like about this is it's much broader. Can you talk about the broader perspective of education with regard to that capability construct there? I think we should see it as, as a broader because there are so many parts in this pain cell management and in people's lives who has the condition. So we need to talk about pain condition, what it is, health perceptions, what does the people think about their own health and what is affecting their health. It's not only the knee problem, it's most probably many things. Beliefs, what do I believe uh, these uh, my problems uh, coming from? Whose fault is it, if you can say so? And then also the literacy. What do they know? What do they know about anatomy? What do they know? These are more uh, like uh, educational things, what we have always uh, been doing in pain area. And also treatment knowledge and skills, how to do what is the level of the patients? And so it is quite a complex part that too. It is complex. And the one part of that whole education category that jumps out at me is literacy. As I, you know, I think I'm on like podcast number 230 or something like that. That literacy, every time I engage with a, an expert like yourself, I always think, okay, we're going to use some high-level terms. That's okay. But I always tried somewhere during these interviews to break down what we're saying so that's it's simple and it's approachable and it's easy for people. Because as professionals with you know masters and doctorates and licenses in education, we have a lot of information in our head. But the ability for us to meet that person with their literacy level I think it's so important, even within the realm of pain neuroscience education, I think one of the biggest flaws I see is pain neuroscience itself is quite complicated. Right. Unless you're really able to eloquently distill that down in a way that's simple, it might not be effective the way you know we read about it in, in, in the research yeah. and the way we hear about it in courses and things like that. So that literacy under the education, I think is so important. I agree, really. And then so if we jump down to the motivation aspect of it. Mm-hmm. There are some things I think that are very common to physical therapists and other professionals, goal setting, self-monitoring, coping with and benefiting from lapses. Yeah. So the coping with I thought was interesting, but the benefiting from lapses, what, what did you yes. really mean by that in that in that part? Yeah. What did you learn when you lost yourself in the previous behavior, in the old behavior? What did you learn? Okay. <laughs> I should not have had such a low, large dough to bake. I should have taken a little bit less to, to manage to do it bit, uh, before I get so much more tense and headache or something. So it is learning. It is learning about uh, when you are going down to the previous behavior. And it's also, I think, when it is explicitly said that it is a part of the coping that you are learning from your, for your downhills. So it is also for the patient, um, it's kind of that, okay, I am allowed to do a mistake. It is not the catastrophe when I stop exercising or doing whatever it is during one week or two weeks. Maybe I, I get sick, uh, I have flu or something, and then 
It is not a catastrophe. This is something that is expected. It is very human thing to, to fall down. As we know from uh, smoking, for example, this is the same thing. It's very similar. You're right. So when we talk about that adherence, or we mentioned before, sometimes people identify it as compliance, mm. but it's knowing that, hey, if you prescribe an exercise program or, or a certain uh, dietary approach or a meditation uh, program for your patient, that you can rest assured that there are going to be days where they don't do it. Mm. That's okay to normalize it for them. Yeah. And from that, there's some kind of learning that happens. So it may be, okay, well, you didn't meditate this week. What have you noticed that's changed? Mm. Has sleep gotten and, worse? Yeah. And what, what happened? What was before you decided that you are not going to do it? What happened before? What happened after? Afterwards, what were your thoughts about this? So discuss the lapse. You need to discuss. It is not just that go and learn by yourself. Right. People are not learning when they are. We need to stimulate the learning from lapses. Or there's the idea that the therapist has to kind of jump in and get them right back on track, so to speak. Yeah. 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 So that's so important. And the, the patient feels like, oh, this was not my therapist didn't like this and it is not about liking but we should not show anything about accepting or non-accepting the lapses it we should we too should take it as a normal it is part of the course great points there and then finally under the opportunity category under this adherence to behavior you have behavior prompting factors external to the person so you have booster sessions with problem solving discussions mm. Tell us what you mean by a booster session and where does that come in within this entire pain self-management adherence behavior aspect? Since we are human, we are getting tired for doing daily the the same thing, whether it is exercise or or just walking, uh, take a walk or something. So a booster session is to, we also know from studies that the behavior change takes time. It takes three months is nothing. Six months, one year, most probably something between six months and one year, the change is happening, really sticking to me. And the booster session is for just checking. Or when I was clinically active, I used it. You call me. When you feel that uh, now I'm leveling out somehow, you call me. They seldom called you. But in quite many cases, uh, in the first months, say you have treatment period of uh, two months, so uh, three, four, five months, you need to have a, a short call them or have a Zoom meeting or whatever, or meet the patient at the clinic to just to buffer up. How is it going? Why is going so and so? And why isn't it going so and so? What are your calls now? What is your next goal in this area for yourself? Remind, reminding about things. It's interesting that you say potentially the behavior change right after really begins to settle in around six months to a year. It also that's makes, what I remember from studies. Yeah, I would say that's true. It also makes me think about just the way our entire healthcare system is set up, both on an inpatient and an outpatient basis, where people come in, you know, if you look, if you're inpatient, then you're in an inpatient rehab program for every day for, let's say, six weeks or four weeks. Yeah. And then if you're outpatient, it's twice a week for probably a similar amount of time. And... It, that might not be the best use of our time and it might not be time intensive enough 
or the change that we're after. And I, I've, when you say that to me, it's just, I wonder, are we just wasting money? Yes, only I think this? we are. Yeah. We are wasting money because also from the point of view that we have individuals here, I don't function the same way as you do. So I need a different kind of uh, rehabilitation period than you do. Maybe for me, it suits once a week or every second week. And for another person who is really down and several areas, perhaps needs support on several areas, needs it once a day during some weeks. But still, when these weeks are over, then we leave the patient. I know, get along, do what you... Yeah, you're done. <laughs> As we told you to do. That's right. Not good. No wonder they are back again. That's right. And I think that ties in really well with those booster sessions because we're saying, okay, yeah. here's the behavior change we need. Here's probably how long it takes. Mm. You can potentially create a different type of program for this, this particular patient. And then keep yeah. in mind, they probably need some kind of support as that time from you, you know, starts to lengthen. Don't just forget about the person. Yes. Give them the opportunity to recontact you. But also I think as professionals, we should recontact people more and say, Hey, yeah. How's it going? How are you doing? Yeah. Under the capability, under the maintenance of behavior section. So we'll move over to the maintenance of behavior now, which was the second part. You have the physical as well as the psychological knowledge and skills needed to engage in a target behavior activity. And under there, you have identifying high risk situations for relapse. So again, we have relapse come into this situation here. Tell us what you meant by identifying high risk situations for relapse. So uh, it means to discuss with the patient what the patient thinks when he or she stops doing the thing, the behavior we have been agreed that the, what should be done to get uh, better health. So uh, often these uh, these discussions are are not so easy for the patient. So we need to help them because we know that when the patient has a fever, then it goes down. That is a high-risk situation when you get ill. If the family is not well-functioning, if there are bad days in the family, those are very riskful situations to, to let it go. And there, is, there has to be a plan how to come over this. What should I do when this situation comes along? And that is also the same thing as in adherence labs, that it is important that we let the patient uh, individual to know that it is normal. This is normal. You are a normal person. It is nothing to worry about, but it needs to be taken care by a plan. So from here, you Craig, it's really just starting a different conversation with regard to the therapeutic relationship in that regard. So instead of someone coming to you and expecting that you have something or can do something to cure their pain, so to speak, it's more... I'm here to facilitate your own self-management with regard to the physical, the psychological, the lifestyle, and the environmental part of it. And then as we're starting to look at that, I'm going to help you identify barriers that could potentially be high risk for you or parts of your life that could be high risk where it's hard for you to either engage in that self-management or to continue with that self-management the way that's needed. And I think even, even in that whole section right there, the, I, I, don't, I don't think most people come to us thinking, oh, I'm going to learn about pain self-management. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> right. They come to us thinking, this person has the solution to my problem. Yes, yes. And not 
I have never met a patient who comes with an idea that he or she has the solution for the problem. If it is, it is from the internet. I read about this and how about this kind of therapy. And it's always that somebody is giving to the patient. So the attitude from the patients uh, does not help us to get the right path. So we need to facilitate the right path from the patients so that we are getting them them on board is thinking. One of the things with regard to values-based living and values-based activity and values-based goal mm-hmm. setting yes. that I really spend a lot of time on now with patients is you have everything you need inside of you to negotiate through this period of recovery. I'm just going to help you facilitate that process in a way that's smoother and more efficient. Yes. And that takes a while for people to really come to terms with that. Actually, there's nothing outside of me that is kind of missing, that everything I have is within. This person is just going to help me with that entire process. I I look at it like, you know, when babies first begin to walk, we don't tell Mm -hmm. them you're going to put your foot down and then they just begin walking, right? It's part of a developmental process. They have everything they need inside them. Somehow it's there. And then we just kind of come over them and maybe we like, you know, hold their waist or grab their hands and we help facilitate them. And as they become stronger and stronger and they balance better, then they move on to being independent. I really look at pain the same way with people. And I believe that is a healthier way for people to start to approach pain self-management and all the various aspects here. I think that kind of jumps us down to the motivation aspect, which is that self-efficacy for problem solving, mm. both handling barriers and relapse. The relapse keeps coming up here, which I think is great. But that self-efficacy part is so important for people. Mm. Yes, it is. That is uh, one thing. I love the concept of self-efficacy. It's a positive thing. I, I just love it. So I put it in everywhere. <laughs> but it is. It is kind of, um, because research has shown us that if you believe in your capability to do something, then you are much more likely to do it if you are, uh, compared to if you are not believing yourself having the capability. So need to um, boost the problem solving uh, self-efficacy as well, since self-efficacy is so situation specific. So they can do the exercise and physical activity very well and have a high self-efficacy in those, but not maybe in problem solving. That needs to be one part of the teaching or discussion with the patient. How See there, identify when the patient solves a problem. For example, when the patient, if you are discussing of relapses and, and in which situations if there is a risk and what should you do, what is your plan to do then? And then they come up with a good plan. Then they have solved the problem before the problem exists. And then they get a higher self-efficacy when the problem comes on their way. Yeah, I was excited to see that in there because I know it's a, a big mediator of change with regard to, to pain. So I like that it's in, in that, of course, the paper in that entire theoretical framework you have. As we mentioned earlier, pain self-efficacy is a, or pain self-management is a big topic. As This is a scoping review. So it's kind of like a systematic review, but a little bit different. You spent a lot of time going through literature. What did you find was missing? Like you hope to see certain aspects, but they're just kind of missing from the literature. I wanted to see more studies about self-management, especially for older people and and also I really believe that I would find 
much more ingredients in the treatment packages that were targeted for adherence or maintenance. And it was so poor. I was like, no, this can't be happening. I was actually doing more, several searches more. And is this really this bad? And it is. So we don't have a lot of research out there on pain self-management no. itself, mm. which is fa- which is so fascinating to me. That, that, that it you say is. That. Right? Isn't so it? much as we are using self-management and as a treatment strategy, and it is working. It's working quite well. But uh, people are not t- taking care of the adherence part or the maintenance part. How they are supposed to, I don't understand how, the, how therapists and, and researchers think that the people are continuing when they are not doing anything for that part. Right. So it's we strange. could have wonderful studies that it's a six-week intervention and we follow them up to month three, which is what most studies are like, mm-hmm. may or may not have a con- control group. That's, you know, kind of here nor there, basically. But after that, we really have no idea what's happening. Mm. We just leave it, leave it. We just leave it, right. And that is unethical and moral and unethical, I think. Ah, talk to me about that. So why would that be? And that's really for you as a researcher, I think to say that is really powerful. Why is that an ethical challenge within the literature? Because there are things that you can do to increase adherence, further adherence after the study, if you are talking about studies, and also the maintenance of behavior change. There are things, there are component strategies that you can have in your package from the beginning, which will give the patient for the person totally another kind of platform to keep it that way, what it should be. I think it is unethical to let it be. I really appreciate that, Anne, because I really believe this entire podcast that I have worked on for many years now is a public service announcement, basically, for both practitioners and people living with pain. But more and more, I realize that effective pain management and effective pain self-management is really a human right that in many ways is missing Exactly. From everything we're doing. So when you when you say the word ethics to me, and as I read research, and it all starts out with one out of three people struggle with chronic pain globally. Twenty five percent out of any country struggle with pain globally. Pain is yes. both a physical and an emotional. Okay, that's all great. Now mm-hmm. what are we doing with it? And if we're spending all this money on a six week intervention, we only follow people to three months, and then we forget about them. We just let them out into the world and we don't follow up, and we don't provide them with support, or, you know, as you call those booster sessions in in your paper, and we don't follow them into the environment and the context of of their life and see if this works, because most of our research studies are in very controlled environments in an academic setting, which is not real life, then what is my, not only just me, everyone who is listening to this, what is our money actually going toward? And how is it effective? And is it effective? Yeah. And I think those are, you brought up a really important topic, but as we look at this, and I think a, a scoping review like this, you know, you brought it out. It's like, well, we don't really know. It's not quite there yet. And we have to do some more research, mm-hmm. maybe dig a little bit deeper if it's not there. But I really think that's, that's an important part. The other part of your scoping review, I think this probably ties into the, to the ethical and moral part of it is, your paper focused on the elderly. Why is that important with regard to not only the paper, but this topic we're talking about right now? Yes. Elderly today 
are not the same as elderly in 20-30 years ago. Elderly 30 years ago just died before elderly today. So those over, we had a 65 years uh, as our limit uh, cutoff. Uh, those who are 65 years, they might live 30 more years. And 30 years, it's half of the 65 about. Right. It's half of their lives, which is still left, kind of, or one third, which is left. Should we just, because they are not working anymore, these people, should we just leave them and uh, not um, put money in rehabilitation of these people or not care of uh, how their self-management should see, uh, should look like. And uh, and the elderly crew as a population is increasing, which we know very well. And so uh, I think if we're talking about economy and global economy and, and national economics, so we should put more money to this group of people who are you know, somewhere nearly 70 or more than that, and help themselves in their problems. Because much more of these people have uh, chronic pain, for example, and those that are under 60, for example. We could save quite a lot of money if we were a little bit more preventive. We had a little bit more preventive actions and also self-management actions. And the adherence is and maintenance is as important there because because of these 30 years that are left in many cases. Yeah. I believe a lot of the research that you have in here really points toward helping people with longer lifespans live healthy and live in a more dignified manner. Mm. Yes. Rather than saying, we're just going to forget about them. And if they come to us, well, we're just going to give them medication. Yeah. Because that's what happens now with a lot of elderly people. Yeah. Some pain medication when you have a, a knee pain or, hep, uh, or hip pain or low back pain or so whatever. That's right. And I really think you're talking about greater quality of life steps that all of us yeah. in the therapy professions know work. And as we figure out these models of more effective pain self-management and how to help people maintain these behaviors, which is really what we're talking about, I really think a lot of that is the future of what I see as personalized pain medicine and helping mm-hmm. clinicians with the skills that support this rather large um, theoretical model um, that you have yeah. here. And it's been fascinating talking to you today, and I really appreciate this paper. Again, I want to mention the paper so people can link to it. It's called Adherence to and the Maintenance of Self-Management Behavior in Older People with Musculoskeletal Pain, a Scoping Review and Theoretical Model in the Journal of Clinical Medicine 2021. And tell people how they can learn more about you and how they can contact you and reach out to you. I am in Sweden, in Melodalen University, middle of Sweden. It's West, Westeros, which is somewhere near between Uppsala and Stockholm. I think everybody knows Uppsala and Stockholm in Sweden. And my email is Anne, with an E in the, in the end, and Sutherland, and uh, at mdh.sae. <laughs> I can't put it in uh, this uh, in uh, English. This letters. You have an active Twitter handle that we can tweet to you at. Yeah. So the Twitter handle is at an s o d e. So that's a n n e s o d e. And just as a reminder, you can find all the links to Anne's Twitter handle as well as the email address that she mentioned. Everything is linked on the podcast page at the Integrated Pain Science Institute. Just go over to the podcast tab and search down to the episode on adherence to and the maintenance of pain self-management 
which is an important topic. I want to thank Professor Ann Sutherland for being with us this week on the Healing Pain yeah. Podcast. Make sure to share this episode with your friends and family on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, in a university setting, in a pain management setting, or in a research setting for people who are interested in, in the topic of pain self-management. I'm Dr. Joe Tata. It's a pleasure, and I'll see you next week. Thank you. listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. That's IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.